companies who invested in proprietary solutions, they learned about the problems they will have afterwards. And that's quite often it's that way. So that if you do things too early, you might fail. But I personally think that this time we really have a very good timing and there's very good understanding. You are listening to the Future Proof Operations Podcast. The manufacturing sector is evolving and the work that happens on the front line is the key to driving future readiness. On each episode, we bring you conversations with global leaders in industrial companies. Our goal is to discuss trends, stories and people in digital manufacturing and offer the latest insight into solutions. Subscribe and be sure to check out our website for more resources at operationsone.com. I'm your podcast host, Benjamin Brockman. This episode is brought to you by Operations One. Operations One is the leading platform to bring operations to a new level of excellence. By supporting frontline operations from planning to execution to analytics, companies benefit from an empowered workforce, increased operational excellence, and future-proof operations. Visit operationsone.com for more information. Hi Eberhard, Hi. welcome to the Future Proof Operations Podcast. Welcome also from my side, quite curious about this new podcast. Great to have you on the podcast. Eberhard, could you give me a 60 seconds overview of who you are and what you are doing? Well, basically I'm an industry veteran already serving the industry for more than 25 years. But originally in the 80s I started in the IT sector at IBM. So I also do have an IT background and I'm pushing Industry 4.0 solutions uh, throughout the industry and I'm a strong supporter of open standards. And what are you doing currently? I know that you are working in some kind of startup within a bigger company. Is that right? Well, I wouldn't call it startup. It's a new division we build up inside the company Trump, in which I'm acting as a CEO and I'm overseeing all our activities in our location technology field. And this company is called Omlox. So what is Omlox doing and why is it important for smart factories? Well, honestly, I like this a short mistake you made here. So the company is not called Omlox. The company is called Trump Tracking Technologies. That's where I'm the mm -hmm. CEO. Omlox is independent from Trump. It's an open standard owned by a non-profit organization with 1,700 members. Inside this Omlox committee, I'm acting as a working group leader use case, but I'm even not the, the committee leader. So um, Omlox is totally independent and driven by well, a huge bunch of uh, companies. Okay, got it. So Trump Tracking Technologies is doing different things and Omlox is just one project or one partnership. Is that right? Well, it's probably not that easy to get it. If you look back in the history, we found that there are far more than 1,000 companies doing proprietary location tracking. And it was just impossible to get any kind of seamless experience and any kind of interoperability. That's why we started together with 60 other companies uh, five years ago to start an initiative to come up with a global standard for interoperability of uh, real-time location systems. This kind of initiative became bigger, uh, is now part of um, this independent profit organization with 1,700 members and it's called Omlox. We are still pushing that and all Our activities we're doing in the real-time location business, basically supporting the OMLOG standard with doing mm -hmm. partly some implementation of the standard. So you can look like if you compare it with Wi-Fi, 
there's a standard in, for example, in IEEE, but also in a Wi-Fi organization. And then you have implementations done by HP Aruba or by Cisco or by other companies. We are implementing part of the standards. That's basically what we do. Okay. You already mentioned Industry 4.0. And we are talking about Industry 4.0 since 10 years. Is it still a relevant topic for manufacturing companies? It's even getting more and more relevant. It's the only way we can basically solve all our uh, challenges we have. And part of the challenges are that there's a limitation in workforce that, yeah, well, the younger generation has other understanding of how they want to work and what they want to do. And there's no alternative to doing this kind of optimization, which is promised with Industry 4.0. No, but you're totally right. Industry 4.0 is not there yet as we wanted it to have. And there's one simple reason. If you wanted to implement an Industry 4.0 solution in your factory, you basically had to do it on your own. It did cost you easily millions. And at the end of the journey, you would have a fully proprietary solution, totally fixed, and any kind of change would cost you another fortune. And the problem was that at that time, there were no standards. So all kind of implementations were purely proprietary, only working in this and only this factory. That's when we understood this kind of problem, when we pushed open standards, and there's now already a global movement towards open standards, also in IDTA, so Industrial Digital Twin Associations, Industry 4.0 Alliance, and many others. And we now see that there's really a global movement started that we have to come up with standards to make Industry 4.0 implementations cheaper, affordable, more flexible, and uh, let's say just by making them modular. Mm -hmm. And part of this overall game is basically OMLOCKS. And once we've achieved to have these open standards, Industry 4.0 implementations will become economically quite fast. Mm -hmm. You talk about open standards in the context of Industry 4.0. And I know from our prep call that you are very passionate about that open standard theme. And I would like to talk with you about the challenge of building technological standards. So where are we right now here in Europe? Where are we globally in terms of building technological standards? from small companies or big companies. What is the challenge here? So first of all, I think if you really talk about the standards, you normally, there are some very rare exceptions and normally don't build it up from a company. You build it up from some kind of independent organization. And when we started Industry 4.0, it was like we had a big vision, but we had no idea how to go there. Mm -hmm. And now we understood that in order to make this kind of vision true, there's a lot about connectivity. In order to establish connectivity, you have to define the interfaces. If not, it will just be a mess. And that's where you need standards. And there's a lot to do. So uh, just one simple thing is if you buy an uh, HGV, so uh, autonomous guided vehicle, you could even buy it from a proprietary supplier, which also means that for the next 100 years, you will always have to buy it from this proprietary supplier because he has it vertically integrated with his traffic management control and maybe also with his storage solution. If you do that, you're just fixed and other Industry 4.0 elements, it will be the same. There's different activities ongoing in this example, like with, in Germany, we work on VDA 5050, uh, supported from uh, VDA and VDMA. In US, we're working on uh, another standard, which is driven by Mass Robotics, another organization, in order to enable interoperability between different HEV suppliers. And then there are other factories, which is very important if you want to build up Industry 4.0. It's basically all about generating a digital shadow. The digital shadow is the basement for the digital twin. 
if you want to have a digital shadow, you need to know everything about your factory. And this needs a lot of other standards. Mm -hmm. So you need to know the status of your machines. I was personally pushing, well, personally did the first semantics on OPC UA inside RAM, which then later on was worked on by my colleagues and is now part of what is called UMATI, which is a global standards from data out of machines. So that's another part of it. If you again look at your factory, you will see that there's a lot of movable things. Orders can move, material can move, uh, cards can move, forklift can move. So if you want to make a digital shadow, you have to know where all those movable things are. And again, we encounter the same problem that when you start doing that, you buy something from company A, you buy something else from company B, and you end up mm -hmm. having dozens of different coordinate systems. And at some point, you will finally come to the conclusion, well, it's a mess if you have 10 different coordinate systems. You need one coordinate system and you want to manage this all. So you need a standard for all the locations inside your factory and to have also this kind of coordinate system physically persistent. And that's basically mm -hmm. what we did with Omlocks. So long story short, it's a set of standards which we finally understood is needed to make a modular, affordable and economical approach to. And we now have already quite some activities ongoing with UMATI, with VDA 5050 yeah. and with Omlocks. They will enable really a modular building blocks for Industry 4.0 implementation. What I find very interesting is that when I take a look in the market and I speak with industry experts, I think they understand that the future of the smart factory is a network, a partnering of technologies. And this is just working out if we have standards, if we know how to connect them and we have the capability to connect the technologies, we need open standards for it. When I go to conferences, for example, I hear a lot of different keynotes. And every year there are different kind of companies with different kind of initiatives which want to build a new standard. And I think it's pretty difficult to come in baseline here and find one standard which is working out for more than 10 companies. So please bring us a little bit more into that ecosystem right now. Where are we and why is it that complicated to build new standards? Well, first of all, you're right. It's nothing which works overnight. That's totally right. So it's a long-term goal to have a standard. And you need supporters. And another thing which is quite important, you need early adopters. At mm -hmm. the beginning, it's just how to get started. And then later on, you need to bridge the gap. So I think with the examples I showed you, we already did a nice part of the journey already. So with you, Marty, and with VDA5050, and certainly also with Omlocks. But it's not like it's already globally accepted and there's still a way to go. So what's the challenge behind that is that you really have to think it through thoroughly and you really have to take into account all the different kind of aspects. And this basically will make it complicated. So let's just go to the example of Omlocks, which is an open locating standard. If you buy a proprietary RTLS solution by any kind of supplier vertically integrated with all the things, they do all the way they want to do it and they ask the customer and the customer looks for some kind of application and will find a supplier which can deliver this kind of application in his vertically integrated solution. So at the end of the day, he will get something which is satisfying. For sure, he will have another problem later on when he comes up with a second wish and a third wish and this supplier he chooses at that time does not have it. Maybe others do have it. Then he finally got stuck. That's what we call it with the lock-in effect. 
But first of all, if you just want to start with some application, it's very simple. You can do everything also proprietary. If you start with an open standard, on the other side, you have a lot of discussions about how to use this multi-use case capable system. So it's a shared resource. So if you now think about a middle layer or an, like an Omlox, an Omlox course on infrastructure, enabling this kind of interoperability, you, we understood quite easily that in industry we have 150 different use cases. So we have HGVs and they want to do a self-location. We have assets and we want to control the position of the assets on a server. We have, let's say, also security relevant mm -hmm. topics. We have, let's say, high priority topics. And then you end up with looking at all these use cases, things where something like, let's say, a ladder or any kind of low cost inventory needs to be tracked at a low update rate, but with years of battery lifetime. And you need other things. They need a high update rate, uh, quite accurate. And you need, again, other things. And they want to self-locate themselves. And the only way to make this infrastructure really feasible for all these use cases is to design all this kind of functionality inside the standard mm -hmm. so that all the participants finally say, OK, I agree to this standard. And this will make this kind of standard quite sophisticated not really simple, but enormous capable. That's quite strong. So this took quite a lot of time. So we collected 150 use cases. We specified it. We agreed it. It was basically reviewed by all the 1,700 members. And this is now mm -hmm. ongoing. The next challenge is that there's a time with the early adopters where basically you don't have all the 1,000 applications there. You don't have all the 100 suppliers already there. And it's also not a volume already achieved, like always at the beginning, which means the cost decretion you'll automatically get with growing at the beginning is not there, which means you need the first installation. You need this kind of lead adaptations mm -hmm. to finally get it started. And it really took some energy. We already did this now for quite some years and we have those kind of installations. We can a lot of different use cases already, but still it's kind of challenging and it takes time to convince them because things which, once they are there, so easily understandable that it makes sense, took a long time before. And I would like to compare it with something we all know, which is Wi-Fi. We really had a look in their kind of history. And it's really astonishing to see that they needed 20 years from when they started to when basically everyone said, OK, this is a fully accepted standard and all the others kind of alternative proprietary solutions were given up. Yeah. I don't see any kind of, let's say, proprietary indoor communication equipment. You either see Wi-Fi or that's all they have. But the way until this was reached took 20 years. And this is like always a challenging thing with standard. It does not come overnight. Mm -hmm. Looking at how um, we progress, we can already say we're definitely dramatically faster than Wi-Fi, but it does not come overnight. To summarize that, when I want to build open standard, I have two challenges. First of all, I have a plenty of use cases and I need to bring them into that standard. And the question is how to do that, how to gather all that knowledge and then break it down and put it into one standard. And the second challenge is adoption. I need to fill that gap from early adopters into a mass market so that you have the traction on that standard exactly. and more and more companies are working with it. And the biggest question now is, who can solve it? And I know from our preparation call that you are very passionate about this question. So do we need a big player like 
we see in America, for example, where you have big tech player, they are pushing a lot of money into that research and development of standards, or can we solve it with a network approach where we have a lot of small companies where we're passionate about this question, but they have to work in the network. I think these are the two options that you see, right? Right, and it's a wonderful question. You know that I like it. So basically, if you look at who left his footprints in our daily life, in all the digital technologies coming up in the last 10 years or 20 years, it's, sorry for that, but it's 100% mm. American-driven. Some of the standards, not all, but some of the standards which came up were also company-driven, so they are not really open. So you can look differently at it, but you can look like an Android of a thing of a de facto standard, but it is somehow company-related. This is one example of those kind of things, so where some companies put a lot of money into one idea and come up with a de facto standard, but it's still somehow company-related. And the other example I already mentioned, it's like Wi-Fi which is now here for yeah, not really 20 years, but close to, which was also driven by a nice set of big companies supporting it. But this is mm -hmm. really open. That's definitely open and it's reliable to this open thing. But again, big American companies were driving it. So if you look at why didn't we succeed in those kind of things in Europe, it's looking at how we invest. If I'm working in a great company, absolutely innovative company, still, if you ask in this company for 50 million, it's a real mm -hmm. big amount of money. It's not like you get easily 50 millions for doing something. So everyone would agree and say this is totally normal. But building up something which is globally accepted as, let's say, a big global standard and thinking about those who were driven by one company, like you can, whatever you take, you can, what AWS was building up with the cloud business or what uh, Google was building up with Android and others, you will at the end see that they invested yeah. more than a billion easily. So how do we get those kind of movements if, let's say, in any kind of reasonable European company, you already have to struggle to get 50 millions? And there's one simple answer to that. And it's basically not a new story. We have to look where we are strong at. And what we are strong is we have a real, very good and strong collection of small and medium-sized companies with a lot of competence. And if you imagine they work together instead of fighting against each other, we can do those kind of things. And once we understood that, we looked at history things where it worked and it did work nicely in, in the industry. For example, if you open a cabinet, you will see that you see different elements like modules from different supplier working nicely together. So there might be some modules from Siemens, something from SIG, something from Pebble and Fuchs, and they all interact. And it's not a miracle, because they agreed together on a field bus and they all work together with a field bus. They are different ones and they are easily also driven, uh, by the way, from Europe, like um, RC, IOLink, uh, Profibus and others. And because the company collaborate and they don't fight against each other, this mm -hmm. really has a global footprint. So Profinet, yes. And when we take your example of the cabinet, isn't there one central player needed who is composing that cabinet and says, I can use this and that components and they need to work together? And if we take that example and bring it into the open standard case, do we need one player, for example, here in Europe, who would be able to centralize all that knowledge and then later on decide which kind of technologies we use? Well, the question is, do we want to have a lock-in? Do we want to have one company to be superior to the others? That's the real question. 
And I think honestly, we don't want to have that. And again, the community of the small and medium enterprises is stronger than this one big company. There were several approaches. Let's say we also tried it, but again, the way I, I saw all those kind of approaches where one company, where we try to build up platforms in Europe, they were all struggling because they basically got sometimes 100 million, sometimes maybe 500. But this is by far not enough to build it up if you are one company. And why? Because all the others, they are not interested in such a lock-in or in such a superior role of another company. So they are reluctant. And the only way to keep them interested and to give them a big benefit in the collaboration, if this is truly open, so not semi-open or looks like it's open, but that really, even if you are a small startup and you're joining, you can really feel and you understand this. this is purely democratic. There's no real company driving this in one direction. It's really a things done by a community. Mm-hmm. And this makes it strong. And community-driven things is not a new topic, but this is done now by industrial community with different companies. And what's really new is that this is coming out of the cabinet and coming into the factory and more or less into our daily life. And that's basically the only thing which is really new. The blueprint for doing those kind of things is rather old. And we see it working. We see a growing uh, number of companies getting active in Omlocks, and there will be a bunch of new um, offerings coming next year. As I understand it, either you have a big player and you need a big amount of money to build that standard, like we see in America, or you go in a kind of community approach, like you name it. We have small players, but a lot of players within that community, but then it's about the mindset. So please explain that mindset question a little bit more. You already talked about lock-in and we talked about openness. What is needed that this community, this network can collaborate and achieve something great, like an open standard? So I think the first topic is always that um, we're living in a world where there's one big company making a lot of money and we all know this company in us they have a nice food logo and they are totally proprietary and they make a lot of money if you look at a lot of startups i saw throughout the last 10 years they all come up with a business plan and at the end of the business plan there's something mm-hmm. written like we will rule the world uh, so we're the next apple in our field which is leading that to a situation where thousands of similar startups developing the same thing very competitive and everyone is fighting against the other to finally get this one and only. And this is really crazy because first of all, we don't have all the engineers to develop everything 1000 times in parallel. And the other thing is, okay, if at all, there will be one who's really ruling it alone, it will only be one and then 1000. And again, does the world want to have this one big or does, do the, does the world want to have something open? And if you really think this through, it makes sense even also for those person companies to say, okay, let's collaborate. Let's work together. But the mindset is really critical here because there's always the fear of something like, mm-hmm. oh, if I'm open, I'm giving up something. So let me explain it with some real life examples I had. So there we have a nice amount of incoming new members, but we also have some examples of where we were not able to convince them in the first step. So for example, inside Omlocks, you can easily have a power tool supplier integrate the Omlocks into its power tool enabling the power tool to get um, automatically self-located and easily transfer, for example, a talk via the standard to an application in a very open way. So I had a discussion with leading companies of this power tool things about integrating this into their power tool. The crazy thing is that 
at some point I understood that this power to company understood the story of the location and what brings it as a benefit. But I said, okay, let's build it by ourselves. And they came up with the 1001 proprietary location system built in their power tool, which needs now their own proprietary infrastructure. And why do they do that? Because that then we again have a vertically integrated solution. We have a lock-in for the customer. Once he bought our solution, he will have to buy mm -hmm. our tool. So that's exactly how yeah. companies think. By intention, they think, how can we keep us in this company, how can we build up lock-ins? This is what is driving them. For the customer, this is not a real benefit. For the customer, it's just annoying. But um, companies like to build up lock-ins. And for sure, others who say, okay, I'll do the open standard, they can easily develop a solution which is uh, better for the customer, cheaper for the customer, with a multi-user capable infrastructure. And it's easy to understand what kind of solution will win. But you have then to give up the mindset of having something which will keep inside your customer's company, you have to accept that this is open to competition. And that's really where a lot of companies still struggle at the beginning, because at the end of the day, the idea to become the next Apple is just so attractive that it needs really some rethinking to get it out of the hands. Mm -hmm. Understand. When I talk with manufacturing companies, I still have that questions exactly like you named them. So can we make it proprietary? How can I uh, keep that long lock-in effect? And what I see as one challenge is that the lock-in game is more beneficial short-term. So you know you have a customer and he's locked in. So I know I will get the revenue tomorrow and the day after tomorrow. And the open standard topic when we talk about the community-driven approach where we need that openness, I think this is more of a mid-term and long-term game. You need to have that adoption. You need to convince your customer for one day, for two days, for the next year, and then he decides he will stay with you. Do you see it the same, that this is some kind of problem, that you need to wait a little bit longer until you have the benefit? Yeah, it takes some time. That's absolutely true. Especially if you come up with this openness and multi-use case thing takes some time until it's mm -hmm. getting so obvious. Think again about Wi-Fi. If you would think about one application you want to do because you, I don't know, you want to connect just one PC over the air for whatever reason, you can't put a cable here. And then you would have an application-driven calculation of return on investment. So 100% sure none of the listeners is doing an application-driven return on investment <laughs> calculation on a Wi-Fi installation. They all do um, cost performance. So what is this Wi-Fi solution costing from this company compared to the other because they know there are millions of applications. And at the beginning, and that's exactly where it takes longer, you start always this kind of journeys with one application and then you bring the next. And this is really where you need companies who have the vision on the offering side and on the customer side that they understand the strong benefits of this openness and that they say, okay, I'm willing to invest in this vision because I know it's good in the long term but they will not see the benefit in the first installation directly. It will take some time and luckily we are here on a good track, but again, it's just taking some years until it's getting so obvious that even let's say the late followers will finally do it and they take the benefits of all the work which the companies did before. Eberhard, you are very passionate about that open standard theme and you are convinced that just the community can build that open standard. But we agree that it's 
needed that we need to change the mindset of the industry. And what do you do every day to change that mindset in the industry? Well, first of all, I try to bring out the word to everyone. That's why, for example, I participate in this kind of podcast and, and many others. So I visit companies, I talk to their management, and we also support a global community. So it's not done, let's say, only in Europe. We also have now a strong partners in a growing community in US and also in China. And the fascinating thing really is that the interesting thing is the community is growing faster in China mm -hmm. than sometimes in other regions. So they are just more pragmatic on those kind of things. But that's exactly what I do. I explain it to them. I bring it down. We are also supporting lighthouse installations. And I'm active in the Omlox working group to bring all together those kind of different interests. Because this is really work. You know, if you do want to get in a community, you have different opinions. And it takes a lot of workshops to bring all the different kind of understandings, to integrate them, and to finally really find the best solution for everyone. It is time consuming. And I'm supporting with my personal power I have also to work in these working groups. That's basically my contribution. You mentioned Omlox again, and when we take a look into the open standard market or the market of initiatives, which have been done in the last years, there have been a lot of initiatives, but a lot of them failed. What are you doing different with Omlox today that this thing will be successful? So first of all, looking at the standards, I do not see something comparable to what Omlox is doing at the moment, honestly. So... By far not. And I also would say we do see quite a lot of really uh, strong achievements from other standards. Like I said, with Umati was one example. We also see like we're going on throughout Europe with IDS, so International Data Exchange Standard, that, that's also something going on. So my personal feeling is that for all the things you do, there's also time when things might fail and when things might go wrong. You have to do it at the right timing. I really understand that if I go, I don't know, 10 years back, it would have been impossible to come up with the open standard idea. Now I really see there's a really strong movement towards open standard. So I really see that everyone understood the need for Umati, the need for VDA 5050, the need for IDS, the need for Omlocks, and what's still needed. And so that's the first good thing. Why do I think that this time it works? Because I really think we are on the right time. Because time. the need is understood. Companies who invested in proprietary solutions, they learned about the problems they will have afterwards. And that's quite often it's that way. So that if you do things too early, you might fail. But I personally think that this time we really have a very good timing. And there's very good understanding that the only way to build an industry 4.0, which is about connectivity and about building a digital shadow, is by having a set of global standards. And again, Omlox is only one of them. We need more, mm -hmm. and I see them now coming up, and I see that they really can fit together nicely. We need more and more role models, and Omlox could be a role model for building an open standard. Eberhard, it is super inspiring to talk with you, but we are already coming to the last question. Taking a look into the future, what is your vision for Omlox, probably for Trump tracking technologies for the whole open standard market for the next 10 years. So where to go? So my vision is that we are hosting some really open standard also from Europe, which are 
globally accepted and which will allow uh, thousands of small to medium enterprises to come up with offerings in this set of open standards and to allow really to leave their footprint in a global scaling without having one big player from somewhere in there who's ruling it to their own will and we are, let's say, we are only an attachment. And that's really my vision and I strongly believe in this vision and I really think we can achieve that. Sounds like a great vision. Eberhard, thanks for being on the podcast. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening and we hope you found this episode valuable. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. You can find more information and resources at operationsone.com. This episode is brought to you by Operations One. Operations One is the leading platform to bring operations to a new level of excellence. By supporting frontline operations from planning to execution to analytics, companies benefit from an empowered workforce, increased operational excellence, and future-proof operations. Visit operationsone.com for more information.